this relationship between the two of us, that's the most important. Mm -hmm. And that's what we've had to learn that like the marriage, we, we sometimes talk about our relationship, the marriage as the third party that Felina has her needs. I have my needs, but the marriage has its own needs. And we sometimes have to prioritize the marriage. Like that's the most important relationship um, that we have to tend to uh, be custodians or curators of. And wait, before we get right up to our amazing interview, we just want to take one second and invite you to something. Yes, this is your big, big event, It's Jeff. our big event, babe. I mean, you've done most of the work this with your team. This is 10 years we've been doing this. 10-year anniversary. July 31st through August 2nd. It's called Plywood Presents. And this year we have a unique theme. It's called ATL Ideas. You can go to atlideas.com. Here's the deal. For 10 years, we have been building this thing together but you've seen every single every single one of these yes back in the day you had to set up chairs your job take out trash and take out (laughs) trash the first year we had bathrooms overflowing i was running around this is not a good promotional taking out trash but now we're we've been around for 10 years usually like a thousand people that come yes we have father gregory boyle coming my favorite he's an incredible leader Home of Homeboy Industries from Los Angeles. Look him up. He's got some awesome books, too. We have Liz Fork and Bohannon, who's been on this podcast before. Yes, and you should take a re-listen to that podcast because it was super funny. really good. Yeah. Uh, we have people, we have so many amazing speakers. But, you know, the thing I love about Plywood Presents, you're going to learn something. You're going to learn content, all that kind of stuff. That's a given. That's a given. But what you don't know is the person that you don't know today. And you will be connected. And you will know them. Yeah. You are going to sit next to someone. This happens every year. I hear that story after story after story. So you're going to sit next to someone, yeah. and you're going to meet someone that's incredible that you will do work with someday in your life. Yeah. And I can't, I can't tell you how it's going to happen, but it will happen. Yeah. The it's connections gonna, are endless. They're every endless. Every single year. So I want you to be there. I'm going to be there. We're going to be there. This is through Plywood People, our nonprofit that puts on this podcast. Um, this is our annual gathering. It's the best. It's, it's the best. And we want to meet our listeners. Yeah, we want to meet so you. So find us and see us and say, tell us that you listen. Because <laughs> it'll make my heart happy it to actually will. see some faces. Plywoodpresents.com or atlideas.com. Either place, everybody's doing it. You should come and join the party. <laughs> All right, now let's get to the interview. Okay, let's do this. This is Jeff. And I'm Andre. Are you ready? I'm ready. Love or work. Is anyone listening? No, don't put that on the air. These two people are really, really funny. This one made me cry. World Series champion. Around the entire world. NBA all-star. We hope you love this interview as much as we did. Love or work. Welcome to the Love or Work podcast. This is Jeff. And I'm Andre. It's good to be here with you today. I know. It's a fun day today. Today we are interviewing... Chris and Felina Hewitts. Um, uh, they are both authors. Chris is the author of a book called The Sacred Enneagram. And Felina is the author of her book called Mindful Silence. And then they also have founded a um, center for contemplative activism called The Gravity Center. And they're based out of uh, Omaha, Nebraska, and longtime friends of ours. Yeah, of all the places to base anything. Omaha. Omaha. It's got that cute little downtown. I love that place. It is. There's some great restaurants down there and the cobblestone streets. Yes. It's beautiful. Yes. They, uh, man, amazing people. I feel like as I was 
as you're pre- preparing yourself for this, there'll be times that they say things, and I, I'm just going to encourage you to do this. Like, stop it, rewind it, and listen to what they just said it again. Because actually, rewinding isn't a thing in podcasts, is it? It's like that little it's 30 like the second back, back. 30 back, 30 back, 30 back. <laughs> yeah, rewind it. It just shows our age. Like the old school back tape Back in player. cassette tapes. Rewind. You can rewind it. This is, it's a little easier, but like, there's a couple times I was taking notes when he was sharing, and I was like, oh, wait, did I get that? I want to rewind that and play it again and think about it. Because there's some, he says, that both him and Flynn, they say these statements that they've thought very dearly and clearly about with words that make you rethink what you believe. They're so deep. Yeah. They're so thoughtful. Yeah. Crazy smart. Yeah. And... I mean, I feel I have pages of notes from just this one podcast. I feel like everybody's going to take something away in some sense. Um, Yeah, I, you know, they're unique also because we even as before we ever started this podcast, before this project, we looked at Mother Teresa as someone that that chose to not have children and to, to focus on her purpose in life. They are a couple that made this um, contemplative choice to to not add children to their family. Yeah. And they share openly and honestly about that, um, which I think it brings a really interesting and positive perspective to this to this conversation. Yeah. Um I mean they're both just they have worked internationally for years and years, twenty years overseas, international work. They've been in the poorest of poor communities. They have seen the worst, seen it all. Uh, trained and mentored under Mother Teresa. I mean, they it, they have this crazy life, and they are still together mm. and still like just committed to this what they call contemplative activism, which we're going to unpack a lot more. Yeah, we're going to talk about the Enneagram. The Enneagram. Listen, if you don't know much about it, you're going to learn a lot more. You're going to hear about their dog, Basil. Um, what else we got? And this word humus. Yes. That was I'm not going to give it away, but humus. Yes. Yeah, that, you're going to need to write that one down too. So, all right, everybody. We hope you love this one as much as we did. Chris and Felina Hewitt. We were both students um, at a little Christian liberal arts college in uh, Jessamine County there in Kentucky. I was um, in my final year and Felina was in her third year and, uh, I had planned to move to India actually right after graduation and, and I did, but a few months before that, um, there was a kind of a accidental knife throwing incident in the cafeteria. What? (laughs) True story. I was teasing this person, um, who picked up a butter knife and threw it at me. And it actually, I think hit Felina in the arm. Um, she'd been sitting beside me. I didn't really notice, but, uh, we ended up talking for probably seven or eight hours. Actually, yeah. until curfew. We went to that kind of college. Yeah. Oh, yes. And then I had to bring her back to her dorms. And then I saw my girlfriends, and they were like, what in the world? You were with that guy all night, you know, from dinner forward? And I was like, yes. And I, I, I said, you know, if I never speak with him again, like, just having that much time with him was just worth it. You know, it's like, I was, like, so filled up. I thought, like, that was enough to last me the rest of my life. It was so good. Oh but then she gosh. she did run me through the gauntlet for the next few months, making it really, really hard um, to land the date. But did um, you know, like, right away, like, 
Chris, you were like, this is the girl or not really? Yeah, I think I knew it was, um, I think I knew I was in trouble because when I moved to India, this was like way back in the glory days, like no email. So we hand wrote letters with like with ink, paper and stamps for like every day for almost three years. Wow. And uh, while you were in India, I think I knew like this is going to be amazing. But like it was really hard too. I mean, being away for that that long and under the circumstances that we all used to live live in the the connection at the beginning was so intense as you can imagine and now that we uh understand the enneagram it makes good sense because he's an eight which is a very intense um or he types as an eight very intense kind of personality structure and then i uh, type as a two and we find ourselves in the same like um harmony triad which actually um connects to this like really powerful flow of energy. So from the beginning, it was intense. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) So three years, you're in India. Felina, you're still, you're doing, you're in the state. Finishing university. Yeah, doing that. Mm -hmm. Three Mm -hmm. years, long distance, only letters. And how do you reconnect after that? Or what happens after that? Mm. So I end up visiting India and I, before I'd met Chris, I was discerning a call to international work of some flavor, but I'd never traveled outside of the country before that first visit to to India. And, and I, I understood that to be like, okay, this is part of the discernment. Like, can we really do a life together? Because he saw his future there. I'd never been there. Um, but he actually came back before I visited India and proposed to me uh, as a way of um, really indicating his commitment to me regardless of how things go in India, you know, which was really huge oh, for me because yeah. he was very devoted to his his work there, you know. And and she did visit a couple times. Um, and we, you know, when we didn't want to wait for a letter to, to get to each other, um, really over the span of three or four weeks, we would like send $7 faxes. Um, <laughs> so it wasn't as hard as it sounds. <laughs> People listening are like, fax? Damn, what's a fax? She'd go that? down to like Kinko's or something like that. And like, terrible. And I love it. You try to send a fax. And of course, like our little office at this children's home I was working at in South India had one phone line. And so if, if somebody picked busy. up the phone, yeah. she was trying to fax, there goes $7 and she'd have to restart and reset. <laughs> oh my goodness. It'd be horrible. denied. And we Depressing. were wrong. It's horrible. And there were occasional, occasionally we'd, he would call me from like this ancient little phone booth. And how much did that cost? Five or $6 a minute. It was awful. <gasps> it'd always be like in the middle of the night, I'd get the call. Oh my it's Chris and I would be crying like Chris is like you that stop cry was we already have to talk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so yeah, we're got, old uh, so how many years have you been married yeah let's see we 23 yeah. 23 in April we just celebrated wow and let's see here so you do not have children is that right that's correct you got we got your, this dog who's sitting in here looking at us thinking we're gonna Take them out. Basil. Yes. And has that been something that has been intentional? Has that been something that has been a struggle? What has that been for you guys with the whole no children thing, being married so long? 
when we were married on our honeymoon, we were sitting on a beach scribbling down names for our first children. Like we really had planned on having a large family, like maybe five or six and, uh, you know, having a blast with it. But because of the humanitarian work that we were doing, um, we had made all these commitments to little kids who had already lost a lot, who had already been disappointed, who had already been let down quite a bit. And we realized at a certain point along the, the, the journey there that to say yes to our own kids didn't mean no to those kids, but it would have changed the yeses we had already made. And so we had to sort of do the math on that. Like, is this fair? Like, and so we actually spent almost eight years trying to figure it out, like consulting with advisors and mentors. And is this possible? Like, could we, could we say no to our own kids as a way of continuing to say yes or following through on the yeses that we had made? And to be honest, it was a really, really difficult path. I mean, it was, it was really painful. And at the end, of course, at that point in that phase in our life, I think socially it was going to cost Felina much more. So I deferred to her to make the final decision. But, you know, we, we ended up grieving, like, and you know, you grieve in both directions. I think you have to be honest. Like, you know, I know a lot of our friends who, who, who had children ended up grieving freedoms, access to opportunities, like other things they could have done. And of course, their families sort of outweighed what they perceived was lost. I think Felina and I had to grieve in the other direction, grieving the possibility of what we could have had as a family, like grieving the possibility of what parenthood could have meant for us or for our marriage or um, who we could have become or what family we could have had. And so, you know, this is 15 years later, like it's, it's still really hard for me. Like there's, there's times where I, I feel the sadness of not being a father or not being a parent. What do you think, Felina? What is, what has this been like for you? Yeah, it's, it's slightly different uh, in that as we were making the decision during that eight year period, I think my grieving took place then. Like, I don't, I don't really grieve it now, but um, during that process, and you have to understand we came from a very uh, conservative religious background and um, I, we knew no one who had chosen not to have children. I was, I was raised to believe that this was my duty to have children. You know, you right. don't. So there was probably shame with that, right? Yeah. You know, uh, to, to imagine myself as a woman without children, you know, a, a, a wife without children was just beyond what I'd ever conceived. And so as I was c- contemplating this, I mean, I, it was it was something that after getting to know all the children that we had come to know around the world, they became so important to me that I was asking this very difficult question. How, how do I have my own children when these children don't have anything? And, um, and, and because of our life and service, we were able to provide for them. So uh, it became a, a really um, enticing proposition. And yet I had no examples of that as an, as an option. And it, it threatened my sense of self, like my sense of identity at the time. What does it mean to be a woman, a wife without children? And so uh, I remember very intensely grieving, um, kind of letting go or dying to that sense of self, that identity. And in our travels, um, traveling the majority world for years, for probably 15 years of our marriage, every time I would go and visit, the question would be, when are you going to have a baby? When are you going to have a baby? Mm -hmm. And it was very much directed to me, not to Chris. And this is what we found in a lot of the circles that we were running in socially, that 
um, that this was very much about my identity as a woman. Um, and it had less impact at the time on what it meant to be a man. And I think what it meant to be a husband, um, without children. So there was a little bit of a different experience that way. So then we make the decision, my grieving's done. I know, I know now kind of more of like what my future is going to be. Um, and I'm ready to move on and just put all my energies into, okay, I'm going to be a married woman without children. What is that going to look like? And then it's interesting because as Chris got older, um, he ended up, I think, returning to the grief in different ways that I haven't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that says a lot actually about like the time in some men's lives versus women's lives and when we're ready for that, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. So it's been an interesting ride for sure. And also just how you're right, like just people grieve so differently in their own timelines too. That's very, yeah, very different. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, I'm so thankful we get to interview you today because, um, because I think your perspective is unique on this topic. We're going to get into it further. But uh, when we first got married, Andre had never imagined herself being married or having children. She and uh, I know Chris, you got to spend time with uh, Mother Teresa and um, in your work in India, which that was like part of her life choice. Um, and calling on her life, which was interesting because Andre wrestled in a completely different way um, of not even wanting to be originally married or intending that. I'm curious, did her life have an impact on that for you, Chris? And I say this a lot about mother, first of all, like that, you know, the the, the things that stick, the things that we, we take sort of in, can internalize most deeply are the things that leave the lasting impressions on us from our, our, our guides, our teachers, our mentors, aren't the things that they simply say and that we hear, but it's watching what's been embodied hmm. in their lives and how they live into those values. And so, yes, I would, I would say um, folks like mother Teresa and and others like sort of showed both Lena and myself a really sacrificial way of what it meant to say yes to vocation. And that the first, yes, we always know this is, is typically the easiest. Yes. It's the subsequent yeses that come sort of backloaded with costs we could never, never have realized. So, you know, people do love to to ask us about mother and and all of the time that we spent with her. But the, 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 the story that's actually kind of ironic that fits really well into this conversation is the, the, the time that I actually introduced Felina and mother Teresa. And um, we were telling mother about the work that we were doing in South India, you know, way back then I had helped start the first pediatric AIDS care home in those eight South Asian countries. And, you know, you would sort of think like, hey, me and mother, like, we're down, like, we're doing the same work, like, she's going to be super impressed, like, yeah, ta-da, first pediatric AIDS care home in the region. And it was like, she just sort of was just like, okay, great. Don't forget, your children are the most important to you. And of course, we didn't have kids, but I just think like, it sort of knocked the breath out of us. Like, she had this sort of laser vision of like, aiming and, and landing where priority should have been. And it was actually really great. We had we weren't married at that that point, but I mean it was actually really great advice in terms of what she was saying, and I think the advice we we probably could have taken it to heart better um, at that point had we contextualized it would have meant like the community that we were building is great, but like this relationship between the two of us that's the most important, mm-hmm. and that's what we've had to learn that like 
the marriage, we, we sometimes talk about our relationship, the marriage as the third party. That Felina has her needs, I have my needs, but the marriage has its own needs. And we sometimes have to prioritize the marriage. Like that's the most important relationship um, that we have to tend to uh, be custodians or curators of. I'm sure that's been difficult to figure out and navigate since your vocation has been so priority and so important, especially when you were living, doing life, breathing all into these uh, communities that you were a part of. Like, how did you feel those tensions going through it? How how did you kind of work through those tensions of realizing that, like that the marriage is that priority? <laughs> Not very easily. <laughs> <laughs> lots of fights. Yeah, lots of tension early on because we had different needs that we were bringing to the relationship and, and, and those kind of collided with one another. So Chris may have been perceiving the marriage was being prioritized in certain ways, like prioritized in our social life and um, some of the values that we've made together. And, and I'm needing like more um, private time or more um, one-on-one time with him away from some of these other settings. And so I think we perceived the marriage, um, in different ways, uh, and we needed different kinds of things from the marriage and from, from one another. So it created a lot of problems. And we now, again, with the Enneagram, the wisdom of the Enneagram has helped us so much to understand that those struggles through the the lens of the instincts, uh, or the subtypes, because Chris, uh, identifies primarily his first instinct is social where mine is self-preservation. Hmm. And so those often collide uh, and self-pres is in his shadow and social is in my shadow. So realizing that we can look back and be like, gosh, so many of our tensions revolved around that. Like I'm wanting to like preserve self-preserve this and he's wanting to take this marriage and and put it enjoy. out there. Enjoy. Social settings. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Have fun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you talk a lot about the Enneagram and we actually talk a lot about it on the podcast, but um, you've literally written books on it. So I feel like you all should um, maybe just start people off about how it can be helpful for your relationship and marriage. You touched on it a little bit, but maybe broaden that to somebody who has not done the test, does not know their type and why it's important. Yeah. So it's, I, 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 I try to say this and it's like, if I don't say this a hundred times, I haven't said it enough, but it's like, if you can't self-observe, you can't self-correct. And I think what the Enneagram does is it sort of gives you sort of a mirror or sort of this compassionate sketch of possibilities in terms of mapping, like where we've come from, how we've gotten lost, how we stay stuck, but how we can get home. When you can observe that about yourself and actually practice sort of gentleness, self-compassion, self-awareness, then you actually bring more of yourself into your relationships. Now, what we, of course, always want to do with the Enneagram or other overlays of what makes us complex or describes, let's say, the the contours of our, our interior landscapes is actually learn more about other people or put this on other people, right? So that's kind of unhelpful. Like if I sit here and tell you my dog is a social two with a one wing, right? The double compliance side. (laughs) Um, That's great. That's an observation that I think I've made. And if that was the real 
thing for dogs, I think it would probably be right on point. But that doesn't change my relationship to him. And now it just sort of makes me. Puts it in a box. Yeah, like makes me now find little caricatures and behaviors to sort of like proof text my assumptions. Right. So, so the work here is to work on yourself. And when you work on yourself with something like the Enneagram or, 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 or these other sort of teachings and traditions that we have out there, you really do bring more of yourself into your relationships. What it's done for, for Felina and I, like she said, is it's helped us sort of observe communication styles, um, our fundamental needs and how we go about getting those met, um, our conflict avoidance styles. It's also helped us sort of handle conflict resolution based on our conflict resolution styles. And it helps us sort of relate to what belonging looks like and what belonging means, even in our notion of our, of our relationship and our, in our marriage. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, you know, this, like the, the greatest things that you learn basically in life come out of the sort of ashes of failure. And mm. so like, it's us getting it wrong. It's us missing each other. It's us not hearing each other. It's us hurting or disappointing each other where like we actually make really great progress forward when we can look back on that and evaluate it for what it was, actually read the news on it, be honest about it and sort of kind of flip it over and ask the why, like, why did one of us act out that way? Why did one of us respond or react that way? What has it meant for you, Felina? In addition to all of that, the thing that stands out to me is the path of transformation that the Enneagram illuminates for us. Uh, I think sometimes people get stuck in type and they're just like, oh, great. Like this explains why I am the way that I am. But uh, if we take time with the Enneagram and, 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 and really uh, open to what the Enneagram is for, it's really for our transformation out of personality structure mm-hmm. and into more essence. And so I think another important aspect of how the Enneagram has been important in our marriage is um, not letting each other off the hook. Like, yeah, you might be an eight and you might have these tendencies, but that doesn't give you a license to behave in those ways or, mm-hmm. you know, that sort of thing. And the same for me, like, um, him, I mean, just the other day, I, yesterday I, I was meeting with somebody and it was a really difficult situation. This friend of ours is in a, a really tough situation and in life. And, and Chris listened to me and how I was absorbing this person's struggles. And he said, um, just be, um, be aware of your own boundaries, you know, which is a real big issue for the two, like not honoring her boundaries. And so, um, we're able to really help each other in that process of growth and transformation. I think for, uh, you know, the Enneagrams become this, uh, popularized in some ways the last couple of years, sometimes that's really good. And sometimes it can be, uh, unique in other ways. But I think the thing that, um, Andre and I, the, what drew us to this, um, self-evaluation or uh, how you put it, um, self-observation was how it impacted our relationship at a deeper level. And I think most people at a surface level, you know, are reading the numbers or whatever, but they haven't contextualized it in relationship. What advice do you have that can lead people in that direction related to that depth of relationship? Because for us, that honestly transformed how we and understood one another and related to one another in those moments? Well, I, I think, so one of my teachers and, and, and actually a good friend of mine um, is a guy named Russ Hudson. And Russ says, you're not your type. You have a type, but you're not your type. 
and, and my sense is, is within sort of what the Enneagram has become and sort of the wild west of like all the memes and it just being sort of like diluted and a little bit quirky mm-hmm. and, and funny is we've, we've, we've fixated on what we're not and at, and in that process lost who we are. And so of course, we're not going to bring the best of ourselves into relationship, right? One of my other, other teachers, Sandra Maitri sort of describes type as, as a prison cell. And it's as if we've incarcerated our own soul in there. And it's kind of a low key drag when she says this. Um, but she's like, I'm less interested in describing the thickness of my prison walls than I am making them transparent so that my essence can shine through. Well, you see, everybody's running around with a damn t-shirt and their type as if we're so proud of, of why we're incarcerated or our term or our sentence for what we've done to disconnect ourselves from who we are. And if that's the case, like if you really do want to fixate on type and 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 sort of polish the mask of of, of personality, you're 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 going to limit yourself. You're going to limit what you can bring into your relationships. Mm-hmm. So, like Flynn has said, it's 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 less about changing behaviors. It's less about changing attitudes and ideas, and it really is about becoming a transformed person. Well, that transformation happens when you return to the gift of, of, of why your soul exists, your purpose, reason for being here. And when folks can, can align with that, like I said, you, you bring something remarkable then into relationship. Like that's where, you know, this, these existential sparks, if it's romantic or if it's in, 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 in community or friendships, that's where these sparks, like sort of, I think really ignite into something that like can burn through um, mm. all the, all the layers of what keeps us uh, at, at, at arm's length, that keeps us disconnected, that keeps us um, sort of orbiting our, our desires for intimacy. And I, I think to to add to that, for us, it's been really critical to go to that deeper level that that you're um, that you're mentioning, Jeff. For us, what that has meant is very practically like being committed to our personal growth like having a path, having a spiritual path, like each of us finding that, like what's going to support us waking up to our essence and getting out of the prison of our personality. Mm-hmm. Uh, that has enabled us then to come back into the relationship um, from a deeper place because we've explored it on our own to some degree. So it's like, we have to be willing to get to know ourself if we hope to be able to share that real self with the other. Yeah. But see, that's the, that's the bummer. Like, I think the hardest patches in in our life together over these 20 some years have been when, when one of us is growing at a disproportionate rate than the other is. Mm. And you can't change a person. You can hardly change yourself, but when you're making strides and when you are being transformed and, and when you are becoming more of, of yourself or who you've always been or remembering what you've forgotten about your truth and your partner is, not stalled, but just sort of staying on, on track or on course. It's the space between that becomes really treacherous and has become really dangerous. So, you know, one of our friends um, says, if you stay committed to your partner over the course of your life, it's as if you'll have been with five different people. And, and I, and I believe that, I mean, the person I am today would never have married the person Felina was when she was 22, nor would the person she is now would ever have married the person I was when I was 24 we've both become already a few different versions of self, which hopefully is a kind of stumbling forward into who we've, who we've been destined or designed to be. But it's in that path. It's in that momentum where there are the gaps where, yeah, she's, 
making tremendous strides in her in in her life and um and I'm not and that's when we really get stuck that's when things have been the hardest and the most difficult I, I've thought a lot about this because the person closest to you sees you in your worst moments and your best moments, but more probably more prevalently in your worst moments because you're tired after the day, you're in unhealthy states, you're exhausted, you're and you drop your guard. And I think that's the thing that now Andre like consistently is like, well, that's a that's interesting that you said that. Um, hmm, what does that mean about who you are and where you're at in life right now? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> excuse what me, my are worst you moments. About? Uh, no, but I, I think that's interesting about the growing at disproportionate rates. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's experiences that can do that. Like if uh, you are doing retreats or conferences or things that like really help you, or I'm sure writing books takes you to that place, right? Where you are just in this writing and growing and changing, you know, and learning of yourself. And like, how do you stay connected, committed? How does that, how do you, keep that together in those gaps, in those hard times? Yeah. Well, it's, the bummer for me is Felina does two or three hours a day of uh, meditation. So like, she's basically a saint. She's grown <laughs> sort of like three or four times around the sun. And uh, as I sort of watch it's, it is blinding the, uh, the stunning sort of depth of, of, of her soul work. I think what holds us together is like shared experiences, um, making memories, I mean, I don't want to be goofy, but like sharing like just a few moments with our dog and like our dog, like actually sort of inviting us to the most immediacy of the present and the present moment. And I think like what we take away from that isn't like, oh, that was super cute. Our dog rolled over and, and showed us his heart. It's a reminder like, no, the present moment is always the most important. And like if we can both be in the present moment and savor that simultaneously, like something happens without being preoccupied about where it's going to lead to or what's next, or if we're going to miss the, the the film or be late for a dinner reservation. Hmm. Um, I think the other thing is in, in sort of circling back to like seeing the best and the worst in each other, it's, it's actually finding some levity about all of that. Right. So, you know, this the word, the Latin word humus is where we get in English, the, the word for, for earth or ground. And it's simultaneously the word in that we get, our English word humanity from. So we get this, like from dust, we came to dust, we shall return. Our humanity comes from the earth. It's also the, 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 the word or the root from which we draw our English word humility. And so of course we have to find the humility of our humanity in its temperance and its um, birth and death and, and, and cycle rebirth. Yeah. But humus also is the, the word where we draw in English, the word humor, and if you can connect your sense of humor to true humility and root that in your humanity and then just plant that in the earth, it's like you have to be able to laugh at yourself at the worst of yourself. You have to sort of realize like, oh, here I go again. I'm going to kick back into that, that, that hamster. I'm going to pick, <laughs> kick back into that, that mental fixation or that habit. And if I can actually learn to laugh at myself, then like the things that used to really frustrate me in my relationship frustrate me less. And I actually have to laugh those things off too. I just have to find the levity and oh, there's her humanity and here's my humanity. And when it comes together, like it, it, it can create some fertile soil for, for something good to come forward. But if I'm, I'm so stringent, if I'm so frustrated, if I'm so controlling, if I'm so particular about how she should be without sort of 
realizing I'm never going to be that myself, then of course, what I'm simply doing is projecting out myself outside myself, what I don't want to deal with inside myself. So I also think like you hear this from old people, you got to find a sense of humor to make the relationship work. But actually I think it's really the humility of levity that is true and is imprinted in our humanity. Hey, Felina, I want to switch the topic a little bit towards you because Chris kind of opened it up saying you spend time in meditation two to three hours a day, um, which you're shaking your head. You do. This is part of your story. And, it's okay. And it's remarkable. I own it. And, but I'm curious how you grew that, how, how that became part of your rhythm. Uh, because I think there's probably a lot of people listening right now that can't find currently 20 minutes of their day for any form of silence, right? Like, um, but yet it's a growing interest. There's apps built around it. There's all this stuff, but you've built it into your practice, which into your daily schedule. Um, some people might look at that and go, well, where's productivity in the midst of that? Where's they start? And I don't know. I'm sure all the things go through your head. Uh, if there was someone intrigued by that, where would they begin? And, and how did you start in that journey? I recognize that my uh, commitment to meditation is um, kind of rare. Uh, a lot of people struggle to sit down for a few minutes, um, let alone a few hours. Hmm. Uh, so I recognize that that is uncommon. Where where I started and why I started and why I'm so committed to the practice is because I reached a point in my life when I came face to face with the limitations of myself, of my personality. Hmm. And, uh, and I realized how I didn't have what it took to live the kind of life I wanted to live and be the kind of person that I wanted to be coming face to face with, with those kinds of limitations, um, brought me to such a desperate condition. I mean, it's not so unlike, uh, the, the spirituality of the 12 steps, like, recognizing that I'm powerless to change myself, let alone the world that I care so much about and, um, and needing to reach to a higher power to access my highest self, my best self, and be more aligned with who I am and what I'm here for and live a life that, um, that flows rather than kind of like always moving against the current in a way that's like exhausting and, and so I've just, I've tasted the difference of, um, of how spiritual practice can impact my life and, and make my life better and make me a better partner and um, open me to greater dimensions of unconditional love and forgiveness and mercy and grace and kindness. And yeah, so I, I'm just, I'm always seeing how I'm not like the times when I'm not flowing in those qualities, even just this morning, like last week, part of my tooth broke off, like have to get a crown. I'm just like, what in the world? Why, why did this happen? I'm, I'm super upset about this and I'm mulling it over and it's going to cost like 950 bucks to get this tooth fixed. I'm just like, what in the world? Like, could somebody please have helped me prevent this? Like, why did this happen? And how, mm. so anyway, right before this podcast, um, I was on the phone with my, my dental office and trying to get this figured out. And I'm like, just noticing like how I have such a bad attitude about this thing that I can't control. That's causing me this inconvenience, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's just like that negative, stupid kind of approach to reality is not helpful. 
Mm-hmm. It's like gumming up my, my energy for the day. And it's like souring my lens. I mean, it's just like everything that I'm, it's a beautiful day. There's so much goodness. Like, I wish I was more tapped into the gratitude, you know, like Chris responds to me and he's like, well, Felina, it's good. We have the money. And I'm, I'm just like, wow, like what a grace filled response to my poopy attitude about this thing, you know, (laughs) just like seeing the stuff that work in me. It's like, it just brings me back to spiritual practice because I know that I know I can be better and I want to live better more often. And Mm. spiritual practice helps me do that. Even though didn't seem to pay off this morning after I got off the phone. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's because you haven't had your moment yet today. (laughs) Yeah. Your quiet moment yet. No, actually I did. Oh, you did? did. (laughs) I need another sit. It just spurred it all back up. (laughs) So you also use the phrase uh, in your work, contemplative activism, which I think that's kind of what led you to this change from you know, just activism and doing and doing all the great things that you guys have been doing uh, internationally all these years to then like almost backtracking and being like, whoa, whoa, it has to be rooted in something stronger and deeper. Can you talk about that? Talk about the process. Talk about how you both had to kind of make a change. Were you burnt out? Is that what did it? So I think this notion of contemplative activism is what has held our marriage together. It was kind of like we had to find sort of common ground Hmm. around her sort of contemplative mysticism and the depth of her spiritual practice. Like I, I, I kind of joke around. It's like when she drops into meditation, I feel like, you know, she's somehow spiritually jumped on a winged unicorn with a flute and she's up (laughs) hanging out with angels, making music. And I'm down here stomping around in mud puddles, looking for fights (laughs) <laughs> um, and looking for people to help. And so as a activist sort of partnered with a contemplative mystic, like we had to realize like if my pissed activism isn't rooted in some spiritual practice, like yes, the unintended harmful consequences are, are going to sort of just wreak havoc in people's lives in my own life. And that, and that was the case. I, I think for, for Felina, like we realize this, like, any worshiping community that doesn't sort of on continuum um, allow that worship to be embodied or realized in service um, loses something, right? And this is all of our religious expression. I mean, you see this in, in, in Buddhism around mindfulness. If you don't move from mindfulness into heartfulness, something's lost. Well, in Christianity, if you don't move from heartfulness into embodiment, something's lost. And I think in Islam and embodiment, you, you have to drop back down into mindfulness and reflect on this. And this is the flow, this is the evolutionary flow of religious expression on the timeline of how it sort of revealed itself. Mm. So I think in my early days, yeah, like the pissed activists in me really just over overreached. And yeah, like um, 20 years of humanitarian work like caught up to us. Like our community in 20 years had had buried over 700 of the women and kids that we were working with. I, I think I don't realize the um, impact. I still don't think I realize the impact that that had the sort of internalizing the secondary trauma and the pain of loss. And consequently, like I, I was hurting myself. I was hurting Flynn in, in, in our marriage. I was hurting people, in my community, and we needed a change. And that's really the change is um, what led to the work we're doing now. Um, what led to this little nonprofit, this little center for contemplative activism to basically say, if you're out there trying to build a better world, you don't have to do it at your expense. Like stop hurting yourself. Stop hurting the people you care for. Like, 
and find some accountability. And for us, that accountability really became rooting this in, 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 in a deep spirituality. It was absolutely critical that we devote ourselves full time to the integration of contemplation and action. And here we have it seven years later. It's like incredible. I mean, the flourishing of this work, we've sold out every retreat that we've given and we're just like busting at the seams. The people are just needing, needing what, what we've found we needed and um, to be stewards of that, to be able to give people um, practices and tools to help um, with their awakening and moving into greater essence is just the most fulfilling thing we could ever do. It's, mm. it's really, really wonderful. Well, I have been on one of your retreats, and so I highly recommend them to everybody that I come in contact with. But I think, uh, I, well, first of all, I guess for our listeners, it can be for anybody. Um, you don't have to be in one specific religion or spiritual way practice, right? That's right. And it really is a great um, first step. Like uh, we were talking about, about learning like the different types of contemplative practices that are out there and then what might fit you best because everybody is so different. Is that? That's right. That's right. Yeah, totally. I I, I must say in that vein, um, because Chris highlighted my particular spiritual practice, it is really important for people to not like compare or think, you know, it has to look a certain way, but to really get acquainted with what practices in in their life helps them begin to um, become more self-aware of their unconscious motivations. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and there's all kinds of ways that happens. Parenting does that for, for a lot of people. Uh, And so it's just, um, it's just starting to pay attention to what really helps me wake up and do more of that. And and so when we do that, we, we do that in a way that frames your your spiritual practice or your inner work or your soul work around postures that are marked by solitude silence and stillness and i know that solitude silence and stillness sound like luxuries for a lot of people but i mean circling back to mother Teresa, it was like i mean she was living in one of the she was living in one of the 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 the, the most crowded cities with some of the most pronounced human needs the the demands on her life were or, or, or I, I've, I've not ever seen anyone manage anything remotely close to that. But of course, as an ordered nun, her and her sisters would stop five times a day for, for, for sacred silence. And you see, these postures of solitude, silence, and stillness became sort of interiorized. And that's actually then how she engaged the sort of chaos of her external world. And so if we don't move this from luxury to necessity, then of course something's lost. Mm-hmm. So you're the doer, Chris. How'd you do it? Melina's meditating for like two hours yeah. and I do not see you <laughs> doing that. So what do you do? When you were explaining, I never thought about the fact that contemplative activism was like literally the combination of the two of you. I could see t-shirts. They're like both of opposites. Having... So let's see what that you was do. so funny. Yeah. So I, this will surprise people. Um, and so I don't want to lie, but I have on my little meditation app, 533 consecutive days. And so I actually feel like Look I need to just you. break the streak because I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to do this for the streak actually. Um, <laughs> but um, I try to start my morning at least with, with some meditation, some sort of quiet practice. I have very different practices in Felina. I, I think the practice that I think has been maybe the most helpful for me over the past few years has been a sort of a, a mantra practice that you align with your breath. 
sort of in the tradition of a loving kindness meditation. And, uh, and I can take that with me. And in fact, it's, it's, it's funny because it's like, when I first started that, um, I was doing that when I was walking my dog in the park and, and, you know, that's maybe not always the best sort of interior posture to be active in a meditation. Um, but for me, this one actually engaged a lot of, of a lot of aspects of self. It connected my head to my heart and, and, and in the breath rooted it in my body. So we do have really different practices. And that's the point. Like when you have a conversation with somebody about their inner work or their soul work, I do think like in all the different ways that religion has failed us, um, it's failed us in terms of teaching us about breath work or it's failed us in teaching us about meditation. And I think for a lot of people, meditation can be intimidating because the truth is, is nobody's good at it. And that's the point. You're not good at it. And that's what it's exposing in you. And Mm. your relationship or your frustration of not being good at it opens up a whole nother door of things that you get to contend with and bring into your practice. Well, when we introduce practices to people, essentially what we're trying to say is these are simply exercises for your spirituality. And there will be an exercise that hopefully will get you into the fitness center. But if you only stay sort of on the elliptical machine for three months, sure, there may be some some marginal increase, but you're going to plateau. And this is why cross training or let's say muscle confusion is important. And I think that's important for us spiritually too. We need to bring a variety of practices and a battery of practices into how do we nurture this, this part of ourselves. So Felina is incredible at it. I mean, she's one of the best teachers I've I've ever, I've ever sort of sat under and come across in this space. And it is interesting because she's not an ordered None. Um, she doesn't live in a convent or a monastery. Like she's actually very seamlessly integrated this into the routine of what is a really active and busy life that, that she lives. Um, mm. The bummer again in our marriage is it doesn't let me off the hook. I have no excuse when I think I don't have time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I have a, I'm going to flip the switch for a little bit. This is kind of a rant. I've never heard you guys talk about this, but it's something I really value about the two of you. I think, um, I have always noticed a real equality in your relationship and which I'm sure is challenging with an eight and a two. Um, the, the dominant eight can sometimes be strong in their opinion, uh, which I'm an eight also. So I could say that firsthand. Um, I'm curious, like it, how would you advise another couple in trying to create rhythms where both people are actively listening towards one another and creating equality in that relationship. As we're talking here and having conversation, this keeps coming up for me is that I think too many couples out there have an illusion that this relationship is about me. And if this relationship isn't A, B, C, or D for me, then I need to maybe get out of it and go find a replacement. There's like this overly individualized um, pursuit, I think, in in our society, and it plays out a lot in relationship. And so I think having a commitment that this relationship isn't just about me, and it's not just about the two of us, but it's about uh, something greater than ourselves and our partnership, Um, whether that's children and family or maybe shared vocation, or maybe um, the way that we are socially or in our in our community, or however it plays out, I think it's really critical to find a way to have a broader perspective of why it's important for two people to come together. 
Hmm. and to stay together. And you know what? Along the way, it may become apparent that it's time to part ways, that the relationship isn't serving in all those different ways. It's not working anymore. I think there's um, validity in that. But I think we too often bail too quickly. So with that kind of perspective and commitment, then I think um, then we can get into um, the quality of equality in the relationship and how to work with that. Mm. But without the perspective that it matters and that it's not just about me, but this bigger picture, uh, I think it's um, it's too difficult to go there because um, to work on equality means that we're going to press up against a lot of parts of each of us that are threatened by the notion of what it means to be equals. And, um, and I think that has the power to destroy the relationship if there's not a, a wider and broader perspective for why it's important to be together in the first place. And then I think if it is a true partnership, then what we're, we're, we're essentially trying to do here is support each other becoming the best version of ourselves, not making the partner look like me or not losing myself in my partner or not merging and, and sort of diminishing what it is that I could bring into the relationship. Because here's, here's the problem. If, if we don't actually differentiate, if we don't actually continue to become the best versions of ourselves, then we actually lose something. And what's lost is some of those original sparks, what was originally attractive mm. about the other. And, and you see what I think happens in a lot of relationships, unfortunately, and again, this is maybe where religion has failed us, is, is differentiation almost becomes sort of like, a red card. You can't differentiate. You actually have to merge. Like you actually have to lose yourself in your relationship. And that's so uninteresting. If I'm trying to make my partner become more like me and that brings me pleasure, then essentially that is simply an egoic form of, of masturbation. And it just fuels your own narcissism. <laughs> like I want her to become herself. And that's what is attractive and interesting and captivating about her. The, if I'm, like I said, if I'm trying to make her more like Chris, oh my God, that's, oh, that's, that's a losing scenario and a recipe for everyone. Oh God. I love it. I love I it. I was just waiting for Chris to go there and he did it. <laughs> he did it. You just can't um, use a better metaphor, right? Seriously. That was amazing. All right. Last, Sorry, last question, question for you. Is it possible, which is. Uh, this is an interesting question for them specifically. I really, I'm glad we're asking their perspective. Is it possible to change the world, stay in love, and raise a healthy family? I think it's probably possible. Um, I mean, I like this one. Felina says, there's a few things that Shelly says that I'm just like, man, that's so on point. And one of them is, to the extent that we are transformed, the world will be transformed. So I, I think what that sort of does is recalibrates the sort of focus of what it means to change the world. And it's like, if we're, again, trying to project outside of ourselves what we don't want to deal with inside of ourselves, then yes, you can fill, fill, fill auditoriums with humanitarians who are actually going to cause more harm because there's no compassion inward. The other thing that, that Flynn says that I think sort of aligns with this is in activism, we confront the toxicity in the world in contemplation we confront it in ourselves. And, and my sense is, is when you take these two statements, um, what it probably looks like to change the world is to change ourselves through confronting the toxicity within through contemplative practice. Now, when two of us align with that, and yes, we align 
very differently in terms of how vocational fidelity gets played out. Um, it's bumpy. It's, it's not been easy, but I don't think it's, it's impossible. Hmm. Yeah, I definitely think it's possible. Uh, I think I just want to encourage people to, um, to realize that these kinds of commitments aren't for the faint of heart. Like they require everything in us. Um, the commitment to one another, to family, to caring and about our world and, and trying to make a difference takes incredible commitment and it requires everything in us. And, uh, and so, yeah, I think it's totally possible. I think, um, it just requires the determination to stay, you know, to stay in those commitments when it gets tough. Now the part about having or maintaining a family, we don't know. We just got this dog. (laughs) And and the truth is, is the dog actually brings us together. Like, I, Mm. I think that's the funny thing. Like, he's been, it's so funny to say this, but I mean, he's just been a pure grace in our life. Like mm-hmm. it's weird to think of our life without him. And then it's weird to think what it must be like to be this little rescue dog, right? We agreed on this medium brown female idea of a dog. We end up getting extra medium. I've seen browner gender fluid who <laughs> was, we were the fourth home in four months and he gets all of the love that we never gave to our own children so uh yeah. and he knows we're talking about him he was asleep and now he's on his back and he's showing his belly and his heart he's like they love me they love me they love yeah. me yes. <laughs> yeah so we can't comment on the family part but we got a dog and uh yeah. and, it, and like i said this dog teaches us presence and like in mm-hmm. in our noble ideas of trying to heal or save the world um in the continued human anti-human trafficking efforts that we're a part of and in, in the support of humanitarians that, that we've given ourselves to, um, at the end of the day, like it, none of that really matters. I mean, if, if we don't have each other and if we're not heart to heart open towards each other, none of that matters. And, um, and so for the good or the bad of it, it's that, that brings us together around <laughs> the present moment where we remember oh. that in this present moment, every moment of our lives is contained in the possibility of every future moment of our lives is held within mm. and uh thankfully this dog is, is is made these moments more more meaningful mm. now it's time for the breakdown wow it was so deep so full of a lot of things yeah like i said i'm like pages of my notes that I'm going through. Yeah. Yeah. If you can't self-observe, you can't self-correct. Yeah. So I think that was really, I felt like that was the stream all the Mm. way through the entire podcast. I mean, with even the Enneagram, like it's not just about like knowing your type and knowing your number and then just like moving on. It's about knowing it so that you can interact in relationships. Yeah, so it's an that, understanding of who you are and who you're not and what that looks like in our world and what that looks like in our relationship, what it looks like in our work and our friends and our purpose and our kids. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I think that at the core of what they were talking about, it's like most of us are moving so fast. They didn't say this, but this is my takeaway. Most of us are moving so fast, doing so many things that we can't 
stop to actually understand who we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That I think that what they keep talking about too, about like, if you don't know yourself, then you can't bring your true self into your relationship mm. and you can't bring more of yourself in and you're always going to be at a disconnect. Then you're always going to be not fully connecting um, with your partner and who you are. This realization also that Chris talked about that you can't change, you can't change another person. He's like, you can barely even change yourself. Like that I think is a realization over time in partnership that you start to understand. <laughs> you don't think about that at the beginning. You think, you don't. You think you're going to change that person. Yeah. For sure. I think I liked about supporting each other. He said supporting each other and uh, your partner in becoming the best versions of themselves um, and finding ways to do that to support your partner. I liked that. That phrase is interesting because it's a little self-helpy, which I didn't think it would come out of his voice like he usually would say something in a different way but it's true i mean i mean that is a pursuit that we oftentimes have we want we need um, but i was surprised to hear him say that honestly and that's good but i loved his his example of humus that word being the combination it's the root word of human root word of humility and root word for hum uh, for humor mm-hmm. i thought that combination of like i don't know and bringing that to the relationship i'm like yeah yeah. That's part of the joy. That's part of like mm-hmm. you, you, the vulnerable side of it is you knowing the worst sides of me and the best sides of me, but also me coming to this relationship, um, saying, Hey, everything that I think and believe and do is not perfect and is not the best. And then also the fact that we can just laugh about some things that go crazy wrong. Like, uh, the combination of those, I, I, I think I'll remember that for a long time. I loved it. Their talk about grieving, I thought that was really interesting how he talked about grieving in both directions Mm. when they kind of grieving, like not having a family and um, how, you know, you can grieve uh, like if you you, if you have kids and family, a lot of times you grieve like the freedom of not like, oh, remember the days when When we used to see movies. Yeah. (laughs) Do what we wanted in a day. We'd look at the day and be like, what do we want to do? Right. Uh, and then the other way is like how they are grieving the possibility of like mm. what that family could look like and how they just recognize that there's grieving in both directions. Yeah, that's and beautiful. yeah, I think that's a really, really great perspective to kind of think about and to remember that everybody is in a grieving in some way, you know, mm. whether they have a family or not. I feel like if I, uh, listen to this whole episode one more time. I'd come up with 10 more things. Yeah, like I think every time I hear it, I would hear something new that they both shared. Um, I do think I need to work on my contemplation a little bit. I think it might lower your stress levels just might a little. Lower it might lower my stress you. levels. It might help Is you that maybe. a hint or a <laughs> encouragement or... Oh, and I do love how it's different for everybody. I mean, I use a lot of body con- contemplation, which just means I have to move in my meditation um which is different like most people sit and and don't move but i really like move in mine and that works for me but i think everybody's different so you might find something that's different for you but exploring that figuring that out and i think the apps are great that chris is an expert he uses an app 
I use an app. Sorry. The I have visual, a gong app. Yeah, the visual of gong. a body contemplation is very funny to me. Okay, you know what? I'm just going to ignore that. Yeah, that's fair. Because I, just I can be though. different. No, I'm not trying to get you to be like me. I'm just don't saying put, like... Don't put me down. <laughs> don't try to put me in a box. Babe, when you said it out loud, I was like, huh. I don't think I've ever visualized or seen you body, body contemplating. But I get it. Oh, yeah, that's a good example. Yeah, like the... the I um, walk through the labyrinth. Labyrinth. That is yeah. like my thing. I love it. I love it. That's true. Okay. This has been We're great. Like I'm so thankful for Chris and Felina. Uh, they both have amazing books you should read. They do these retreats that you have experienced. I haven't experienced yet. And you should check them out for sure at the Gravity Center. And we will put all the links into uh, the little descriptor. So check love them out. It. All right. This is another episode of Love or Work. If you take a second, I would love it before you're done. Right now, look at your app. Click on our little thing and give us a little rating. Five stars, if you would, please. And we will see you again next week. This episode was produced by DJ Oak Diggy for Soul Graffiti Productions. 